dislike it. You know, the um, having an unusual name is 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 kind of cool. Like people remember you for your name, if anything else. <laughs> if anything, yeah. If not for anything else, that I do. But um, but yeah. So it's it's not it's not a bad thing. Um, my first name's actually Ben. And your sister is quite unusual name. names as well. You what? Sorry. What's your first name? Sorry. My first name's Ben. So I, I answer to Ben. My middle name's Xavier, but I've been called Xavier ever since I was a kid. So. Um, yeah, again, people trying to be unusual. I just grew up with that being a normal thing. Um, but it makes it a nightmare when you oh. try and go to the bank and sign for things and they're like, what's this signature? It's not, <laughs> there's no a B in it. <laughs> <laughs> I never I never knew your actual name was Ben. Yeah, yeah. And I'm, I'm slightly disappointed by yeah, that no, now, no, to be yeah. honest. It makes you sound yeah, less exotic. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean, my, my middle name is Richard, which is, is not that exciting because it's the same. So my dad's called Richard. So I basically got oh, that's classic, my dad's though. name as my middle name. Yeah, but well, that's, that's pretty standard, thing. isn't it? I think that, I think that's decent, or or your, or your granddad's first name, or something like that. Well, my uh, my name I would have been called uh, my first name would have been Max, but we had a cat at the time called Max, so <laughs> the cat obviously there could be two Maxes, and then my sister was named after Carly Simon, the singer. Okay. Which is and the only song I know that Carly Simon has ever sung is "You're So Vain," which is like some '80s hit, I think. And and I think basically it's not called that because my dad just liked, or my mum and dad liked that song. And the the and it's spelled exactly the same as Carly Simon's name, which I I thought was quite funny. But, but you weren't you weren't uh, named yeah, after I mean, the, it wasn't an Indiana Jones thing where you're named after the dog. <laughs> No, I mean, if anything, I would have been, if I was going to be named anything else, it would have probably been Elton after Elton John. That would have been a cool name. Which I'm not saying Chris isn't a cool name. It would have been quite. But that, would have, or that would definitely have been a cool name. <laughs> I mean, Elton would be a bit cooler than Chris, wouldn't it? But yeah, like that's purely because like Elton John's my, my dad's favourite yeah. uh, artist. And to be fair, up there is my mum's. My mum's is David Bowie. And I, to be honest, I'm glad I'm not called David. Yeah. Um, but and that I wouldn't have been called David because I've got an uncle David, so that would have been a weird one. Um, yeah, Elton. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, Elton would have been quite funny. Um, uh, but yeah, apparently not. Apparently they went for Chris, and I asked them why they chose Chris as my first name, and they were just like, oh, "I just quite liked it," and I was like, "Oh, that's a good read." That's really boring. <laughs> I was expecting something <laughs> interesting. The funny thing, the funniest thing I get is when people say to me, um, "Oh, you're called Xavier." And then you can see them almost wanting to ask, why do you call yourself Xavier? It's like, I, I didn't choose that. When I, was, when I was a kid, I wasn't like, sorry, guys, let's, you know, call it quits. I want to be called this. I could barely spell it until I was like eight. <laughs> so I, I could still barely spell it. <laughs> I, do, I get the first, the, the, the first letter done and I'm kind of like, yeah, the rest of it, It'll I'm do. just going to yeah, guess it. Line. It was sound about right. If it's got enough, like, uh, vowels and consonants in it, <laughs> probably roughly. That was my theory, anyway. So, anyway, I've got, this is episode eleven of the podcast, and I've got Ben. Yeah. Not really. I've got Xavier here from Aero Coach, and we're gonna do a bit of a. It's gonna be a bit of a geeky one, I think. We're gonna do some uh, speedy, bikey, chatty, stuffy because uh, there's lots of like really there's lots of really interesting things on the aerodynamic side anyway and who better to talk about it than an, an absolute expert who has helped me out personally with my fits and getting me really super slippery uh, and also someone who does 
just really cool shit. Like it's cool. Um, and I guess uh, what else could I say about this? Yeah, like it's gonna be a bit geeky and a bit cool, which is kind of right up my street, to be honest. More than anything, like I'm all about the geek sense. And we're so we're recording this on the fifteenth of April. Uh, so the latest that's come out in the news today was the Tour de France. Can't even say it. Tour de France being rescheduled to the 29th of August until the 20th of September. But it's also meant they've tried to juggle around the world champs like straight after the Giro, the Vuelta, some cobble classics. And I'll be honest, I, I take it as being pessimistic, but I don't think it's going to happen. Uh, what's your kind of thinking yeah, on it? Yeah, I mean, I think that obviously it's a it's a good idea to have some kind of a date for the Tour de France um, like it is for the Olympics so that sponsors don't say right all cycling's over and we're not going to start helping out the teams because I think that that would end up with this kind of domino effect and a downward spiral where um, people start pulling out and then there definitely wouldn't be <laughs> Tour de France and stuff like that later on um, but I think that the you know I, I, I think that it seems very optimistic yeah I agree um, um, and being able being able to kind of get riders from the Tour de France to World Championships is going to be a real logistical nightmare for teams and riders, and almost impossible. Certainly from a time trial perspective, you, you'll get people like they do in the Vuelta pulling out in the kind of second or third week uh, to get ready for the World Championships, which people kind of accept as a thing that happens in the Vuelta. But in the Tour de France, that would be new, and I think that that would devalue the race a little bit if people are saying that. Um, you know, if the field suddenly gets decimated in the final week because everyone's worried about winning worlds. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I see it being um, something that they, they kind of needed to do. They needed to display that there was going to be some backing behind having a Tour de France. But um, I, I wouldn't be surprised if it changes um, in the next like, couple of months. Yeah, I've, I put it out there on Instagram today trying to get general gist and opinion. And... Um, I think the general the general consensus was it's too early to currently commit to anything. Um, there's a lot of chat that there, a lot of the chat was sort of saying there's a very high chance it could be a second wave around that time. Like, because places will have started to pretend, maybe not necessarily come out of lockdown and therefore that's the chance when you get second waves. Like they're finding second waves in China at the moment from people coming in from russia basically yeah. so there's no there's still no cure like uh it's a serious situation um you know the olympics all being rescheduled kind of says it all like to me the olympics is the biggest sporting event yeah. like full stop but it's every four years while you know the tour de france i think is the known to be the biggest sporting event that happens every year so yeah it's a tricky one it's a really think, tricky yeah as as a logistical exercise as well, you are moving people around the country. So it's not like you're, um, uh, you know, you're not, you, you can't do something like have a velodrome where it can be very well contained and athletes can race and be kept apart from each other and things like that. By nature of it, the Tour de France is yes. engaged with its audience and the whole, a large part of the race is that you're by the roadside or you're hanging around at team buses beforehand and afterwards and you're going to podium ceremonies and people are meeting people and getting interviews and things and um if a tour de france does exist and those things aren't the same then um i think it'll be in stark contrast to 
you know, years gone by and it'll, it'll look like a very, very different race. It won't be a Tour de France like we've known it, even if it does take part in August like they want it to. I mean, it must be so impossible to try and police that as yeah. well, though. Like, you think it travels around the whole yeah. of France to try and police people not being able to spectate. It must be like, I mean, it's a logistical nightmare, Yeah, I mean, it's a logistical it? nightmare anyway. So, I, I, I mean, I, 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 it's not my area of expertise running mass stage races and things um i know i we organize little time trials in the uk and they're difficult enough <laughs> but um but trying, yeah, trying to exactly. do something like tour de france with all the infrastructure that comes with it um I, I i have no idea how to get my head around something like that so um i'm sure it's very difficult i saw like a because i went out there for stage 18 last year and i and i went out where there was skoda and got like a bit of a I was being, I, from, I kind of got an insight into it a little bit and it just looked like mm. chaos, like literally like chaos. I, like it was insane. And, and like we were, we, I was in one of the team cars being like uh, driven around and they're like how, how strict they are to schedule. So it was the stage before they had the landslide oh, and right, everything yeah. where age got cut short. Um, and like, yeah, it was just, bonkers is absolutely bonkers so i mean and then also trying to shove three grand tours into basically the last quarter of the year just sounds like as a rider i'd be sitting there thinking shit well, no, no one wants to give up on their grand tour do they so um you know you, you of course people are gonna want to um not you know, not postpone theirs if no one else is um but uh but yeah it does seem um yeah interesting <laughs> the, the new calendar but I mean, it's, you know, they, they have to do that. Like you can't just say, oh, no, we're going to bin it off because then you will get places like, I mean, um, from the looks of it, the guy who runs the CCC team is just looking for an excuse to um, to, to to jump ship. Um, and a big announcement like the Tour de France not existing would, would certainly, certainly aid that decision if he did. Yeah, I mean, you could see teams could fold. Yeah. Which is why I think, yeah, if teams fold, then the license is up for grabs and then you might see pro Conti teams like or or other back teams kind of jumping up. I think the the teams most at risk of folding are the ones who are more sponsor driven than others. So if you have a team that's um, bankrolled by um, a fan uh, or someone who's got the ability to um, stay afloat and that running a Tour de France team or a World Tour team is um, a small percentage of the overall business, then they'll be all right. Um, so you've got, you know, teams mm -hmm. like Ineos uh, or um, Israel Cycling Academy, uh, sorry, Israel Startup Nation. Um, and yeah. in the past, teams that were, um, you know, run by Tinkoff and stuff like that, where um, there's enough money kind of to kind of just keep going in a bad year. But the teams who rely on sponsors who are within cycling, who are going to have problems keeping themselves afloat. Um, you know, I think some webs are um, an example of that. They haven't really said anything about it yet, but I wouldn't be surprised if that was difficult mm -hmm. for them. CCC that, you know, there's a um, footwear company and um, any excuse to, to pull out of a bad decision. If you're having to pay your riders like a lot of money, because it does cost a lot of money to run yeah. a world tour team. Um, then they can force measure it and, <laughs> and say, and say we're out. So, um yeah it's 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 a really tricky one and i think that um it'll be um 
impossible to predict what will happen. Who knows? You know, some of the big teams might just say, no, we're done. Um, and, yeah. and then you run into problems of like what happens to the riders then because you can't just spread them all out amongst the other teams because they'll be stretched as well. So you might have some very big name riders in that situation who have to drop down to Conti or Pro Conti or maybe they'll retire because they're on the verge of it anyway and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, it's, 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 it's bad news for the whole world for many more important reasons, but for the cycling world in particular, it's definitely something that's um, uh, going to be a, going to be an issue, I think. I guess it leaves with every challenge there's opportunities as well like you never we we never know what will come yeah. from it i've got a a use a really uh maybe pointless claim to fame <laughs> with ccc uh, ironically um so i used to design uh when i worked in retail design i used to design um ccc oh, stores cool. that is very cool uh yeah well that's all right they're pretty pretty standard but then the the so my claim to fame to the team is when they were pro Conti team, and uh, I I actually designed the oh, kit. Oh right, wicked! That's awesome. Was yeah. that which kit was that? Was that the? It was like the first. It was a very 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 orange one, like full what, orange. What year was but, that? Uh, two thousand and oh, God, I want to say like was that when sixteen. They went, was that the year like they went that? to the Giro? Yeah, yeah, I think it might have been. Yeah, yeah actually. I think Marcin was riding. Marcin Belaboski was riding for them about yeah. Yeah, yeah, he was. He was still riding That's for cool. them. But it was, um, it was basically done. Um, it was, it was. To be honest, it was a. I say designed it. It was basically. It's got to be this yeah. color. Uh, can you place the logos <laughs> on it? And pr- that was pretty much it. Like it wasn't really designed. It was quite a literal. We just need someone to place the logos on on oh, the mate, template. You can you can so claim can... that. I think that's uh, that's absolutely fine. <laughs> quite a funny one yeah. though, isn't it? <laughs> that's brilliant. I mean, the kit's got better, definitely. I quite like it actually. This the current one with the black shorts that fades in. I think it looks quite yeah. smart. Anyway, so I know a lot of people are going to ask this one, and so with Aero Coach, a big part of Aero Coach is getting people faster. Yeah. Quite simply. How the hell do you get someone faster? <laughs> so, um, well, initially, Aerocoach started up just from a uh, rider positioning point of view, because obviously the riders, um, in terms of aero drag, which is, you know, the thing that's the that's going to be slowing you down the most when you're riding on average, unless you're just a pure hill climber mm. or something like that, you don't go down hills ever. Um, then, uh, so your position accounts for on a road bike, you know about 80 percent of the uh, of the overall aero drag so we started out doing um a lot of aero positioning work um which is what my background yeah. is in um and we were doing working in outdoor velodromes doing that using a very early version of the um the garmin track aero system which is basically like a um a very cool little bit of kit which is um like uh, gives you live numbers so you can ride around a velodrome and you can see how aero you are as you're riding around it's all beamed to a computer um which is the same system that's used by you know lots of world tour teams um and uh and national federations and we still use uh, like an updated version of it now so that's what we started doing because that gave the biggest kind of return on time so you make someone more aero their position and you'll get a hell of a lot faster than you will do if you buy a new bike for example um yeah. from there um we started making components and stuff so um i think the first thing we came out with was 
um, a saddle in conjunction with another company, uh, which is kind of it was designed around keeping you kind of planted on the bike uh, and making sure you don't kind of move around so much. And again, that was in the same vein as kicking a body more aero. It was to stop you shuffling around because the more you shuffle around, the less aero you're going to be. So although it's not an aero saddle necessarily, it helps to make you more aero, uh, which is the which is the idea. Um, and then we started making other bits and bobs that we did started doing chain rings Um a very subtly kind of non-circular chain, not an oval chain ring, but something that was based on a lot of the academic work that we did. Um, Cause we built a, a, a special instrumented ergometer in the lab uh, to analyze your paddling stroke. Um, and use, I used the data from that to design the chain rings, which is, um, which is pretty cool actually. Um, so they've, they've um, in fact, have you ridden our non-circular ones or did you get, did you get circular ones? I can't remember. I, Got non-circular. Yeah. yeah. So, what? I mean, what? What did you? What yeah. did you think of those ones? Because um, you rode them for a bit. I rode them for a day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Non-stop yeah. for a day. Uh, to be honest, I, uh, I couldn't. I'd be perfectly honest. I couldn't really tell and the that's, difference. That's that. Was, um, that was kind of the goal with, with those chain rings. Is that you? What you don't want is something that's so dramatic that it takes you time to get used to, because then your pedal stroke and the way that your muscles fire adjust to that. And then it starts to become, yeah. you know, you, you, your pedal stroke is then adjusted to the chain ring and then that's it. Um, then, I, used to, I, I did use osymmetrics yeah. at one point just because everyone else buddy yeah. used them. I tried them out and um, like they are a significant yeah. jump. And I really noticed going from a bike with osymmetrics to non-osymmetrics well, with your ones, as I say, to be honest, I like I, I wouldn't really, I can't think of telling the difference. And you know, I've used them on the, I've ridden them for a day. Yeah, yeah. Like that's pretty damn good. <laughs> testing yeah, for, it. for a whole day rather <laughs> than just an hour in a day. <laughs> um, but yeah. yeah no, the, the the idea was um, that we didn't want people to have to have those chain rings on all their bikes because it's just never going to happen. So you can swap from brown rings to our like slightly non-circular ones, and we change. The, the thing with those is it's all based around inertia. So you were doing a time trial and the time trial version mm-hmm. of our ring is, uh, has less of a change in gearing during the pedal stroke compared with the, um, like the inner ring that we do, uh, which is you'd use something, something you'd use if you're climbing where it's a bit more dramatic where the inertia is a lot lower. Mm-hmm. And when the inertia is higher, so wheel speed is higher and you you know, the momentum is, is greater when you're doing a time trial your pedal stroke is quite consistent. So you don't really want to have a big jerky chain ring that changes your pedal stroke really, really weirdly. Um, so the biggest chain rings that we do that is, uh, I think it's a 62, um, it's it's almost perfectly round. It's not it's not like very dramatic, but then the inner chain rings that we do because your pedal stroke is quite jerky when you go uphill, when you're using an inner chain ring, um, it, it mimics that action a little bit more. So it's slightly more non-circular. Um, and they're made out of carbon, which helps to reduce the friction a little bit. I mean, the thing is, we're not claiming that these things are going to save you like 10 watts or something. Like it's, it's a very small improvement, but um, they're stiff, they're a bit lighter, they kind of look cool. Um, and when you get them wound up to speed, certainly the time trial ones, they feel a little bit like a flywheel um, and you don't have to get accustomed yeah. to it. Um, uh, and when we, in fact, when we first brought them out, it was a few years ago. Not a lot of people were doing single chain rings at that time. So it was kind of like a new thing. Um, for time trialers to go one by was starting to become more popular. Um, so uh, it was just like a nice option for people because you just, it had long teeth on it. So you just, yeah, stuck the chain ring on, took your front mech off and 
saves a couple of watts aerodynamically to do that and people that's that's pretty commonplace now is for people to go one by on their chain rings um not because of us but like just the way the industry's gone in that direction with more speed on the back like 11 and 12 speed it means you can get away with it a bit more do you think it makes a massive difference the one by setup the aerodynamically uh, so, so with the error error wise it, de- it depends how you define massive so it, it saves like if it depends what you're going from and to as well so if you go um we did a test where we got a um we had a like a i think it was like a tiagra uh double chain set with a front mech mechanical yeah. front mech and then we swapped it out for a track chain set with a single ring and no front mech which had a, a narrower q factor which is the distance between your feet um and that was nine no. watts quicker at 45k an hour um which is plenty, but then because the narrow Q factor brought the rider's legs in a bit, some of it's going to be down to that. Um, but with a double chain set, you can't narrow the Q factor because uh, you start to get into clearance issues and things like that. So um, I think that aerodynamically, if you just take the front mech off and you take the inner ring off, it's normally like a few watts. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, you know, from a biomechanical perspective, if you can do things like playing with Q factor a little bit, because um, for trained cyclists, reducing your Q factor slightly on a road bike is um, often, not always, but often, often good. Um, then you know it it does start to add up. Um, but it also depends on the kind of races you do. Like I do a lot of um, uh, UCI races um, abroad, and they tend to be quite technical and kind of hilly and things. So um, this year yeah. I kind of decided. Well, <laughs> there's not a lot of racing at the moment, but um, this year I decided that I was going to leave my front mech on um so that i can just have the opportunity to flick between gears if i need to and probably put a big like a 50 tooth chain ring on the inside and then a 58 on the outside just to um, have a better close nice. ratio um because i for the national 24 last year i'm i think i rode a 58 well, i rode two and i rode what would it be 50 no it was a 60 44 i rode a 60 because i rode a 58 44 for the year yeah. before and I went up to a 62 for last year. And loads of people just, like were saying to me, like, oh, how can you turn that gear? And I was like, well, when you get up to speed, it's it's not that bad. You've got the inertia behind you and you, you've got the momentum going. It's actually fine. But also, fine. You, you, you choose the same gear. Like, if, you, if you're on a 60, no one's going give to you, give you shit if you're riding a 54-14, for example, on the back. But you ride a 60-15. Yeah or a 60-16, and it's pretty much the same gear. Um, it's like four, four exactly. teeth on the front is give or take one tooth on the back, um, depending on where you are in the cassette. Um, so all you do is just choose bigger gears on the back, and it's a little bit more efficient that way too. So, yeah, no, I, I know what you mean. It's like I've, I've got a um, – when I do um, training at the track, I think I've got a 62 or a 60 front chain ring. And everyone's like, oh, you're on such a massive mm-hmm. gear. It's like, no, I'm on, a, I'm on a 95 inch. I'm on like smaller than a lot of people there. But it just looks, it's a big poser gear. Like I do realize that. But <laughs> um, yeah. but it's, it's the same gear as everyone else. It's just a little bit more efficient because you're not, the chain's not having to bend around the, the cog so much. Yeah, that's always been my theory is that if you've, surely if the, tra- the chain has got less kinks yeah. in it, it's more efficient. So I saw uh, someone at the, I can't think what world champs it was. It wasn't Yorkshire. I think it was the year before, 2018. And there was a guy that was on a Cervelo and he had, he set it up one by with a massive chain ring on the front, but then he was riding an X, a Shimano XTR DI2 rear mm. mech with like a 36 cassette or something on the back or 38 cassette on it. I wonder if it, it was um, Martin Toff Madsen 
when yeah, that sounds yeah, like the he, one he ran one by when they were in um, Norway. Was it Norway where they had to go up the hill at the end or Austria? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm pretty sure in Norway. I was there actually uh, helping another rider, and uh, he. I'm yeah. I'm pretty sure I saw that he had 1136 uh, one by setup, which I thought was. Um, I mean, it worked. He did real well. Um, but the rider that we were helping had a double setup, and we had to plan where he was going to make the front shifts um, because you can't really like screw it up at <laughs> the World Championships and and the, the approach to the climb at the end. It was basically like a rolling course and then a big killer climb at the, at the very end of it. But to enter the climb, it was yeah. cobbled. So you couldn't do your front shift there yeah, because you yeah. might drop your chain. Because so we had to like mark out a point on the course where he's going to do his front shift before he got to the cobble. It was all very, yeah, it was all very technical and cool. But so I've just, I've just, I've just found a photo of that bike. It was Martin yeah, Topmadsen, yeah. and he was riding a sixty-two tooth single ring on the front and a forty-two cassette on the back. That's fantastic. That is, yeah, that is brilliant. Sixty-two. That's. I mean, yeah, I love yeah. It. That's that's. You, you start to run into clearance problems when you have uh, chain rings that big. Although I will tell you, we did do a, we made a, um, a hundred tooth chain ring for someone like a few weeks back or a what? month ago, I think. Um, and they were using it for, uh, I think they were using it for like a roller racing record uh, where you stick a bike on rollers and put a speedo on it and see what you can get up to. I don't know what the regulations around that sort of thing are. Um, pump your tires up real hard, I suppose. But uh, but yeah, he wanted he wanted a hundred tooth chain ring, and he was like, "Can you do it?" And we were like, "Yeah, why not?" <laughs> so we made this massive thing that weighed like half a kilo. <laughs> so that's the biggest one you've ever done. done a hundred tooth. Yeah, um, it was it was a big. Wow. Now, now, how big was that? Like the diameter of that? Uh, that must I've be got huge. a picture of it somewhere. I think we put a picture on Instagram, which had a knife and fork either side of it. And uh, it didn't look out of place. <laughs> so when you say, when you say dinner plate chain ring, this thing literally was that big. Um, but yeah, I think there's a picture on Instagram. Oh, okay, cool. We'll, we'll make sure I'll put like a link to it in the description. <laughs> so you, so with the aero testing you do, when I did mine, we did uh, like half a day in an outdoor velodrome, which so my, how, how it went with me was, it was like half day on the outdoor velodrome, which was where we did the big changes. And then we did half a day indoors in a wind tunnel where we did the really refinement and tweaking and adjusting. Yeah. We? Yeah. And that's, um, it's, it's kind of nice. Like we, so we have three different locations when we do aero testing with people, um, outdoor velodromes, um, which I think, I don't think a lot of people do that to be honest. Um, and it's, it's, it's nice because we've got a, a really good location to do it. Um, and the, the data we get is pretty good. It means that we can charge people a bit less. So like as an entry to, um, doing aero testing and things that's really like a really popular session for us because you don't have to spend as yeah. much money as going to the wind tunnel um, and then indoor velodromes which is what we've done for years and years and years and then uh, wind tunnel testing which we've done in various places but um, we uh, uh, the new Bourbon tunnel that was um, built in Evesham is quite close to us so um, we're quite lucky in that we've got all three facilities that are within distance of our HQ so um, we can kind of flip between them as and when we need to um, the data we get from all of them matches up the way that we collect the data. So um, obviously outdoors, you've got um, sort of like more swirling wind and things. Um, the way we collect data in the velodrome, um, although there isn't wind, as you go into the bankings, there is an increase in your angle, which is the, the angle of attack mm -hmm. of the airflow on the rider. So um, you're not just seeing dead on wind the whole time, which is, I think, a misconception that people people think when they look at velodromes. Um and then the wind tunnel, you can simulate whatever you want. 
and uh, you remember the way we were doing stuff with you is that we were moving the we were kind of swinging you around uh, as you were as we were collecting data. So it's not just head on wind again. Um, as we were collecting our numbers, we were moving you from left to right to simulate moving wind yeah. around you. And it's important that you do that as well because otherwise you end up getting like weird numbers out of a wind tunnel that don't really represent how things uh, match up. Um, and that's yeah. why. I've seen some people who've had like wind tunnel tests done and the position that they come out of, they've just done like a wind tunnel test and they walk, they walk out of it of a position. And I'm just like, I don't know how you can sustain that outside. You can't see. It, <laughs> yeah. And it's a, it's a, um, I think if you only uh, work in one location, it, it can, um, you can kind of like, you can end up doing things that might not, um, might not work quite so well. So I think, for us working in three different locations really forces us to do things that will work um will work outdoors and yeah the not seeing where you're going thing is always a bit of a bugbear for me because you can you can give someone a position in the wind tunnel and say oh yeah you're going to say 50 watts or something off you go and think you're great but um if you if the rider goes out and like can't see where they're going or tries to do what you you know what you might have told them and goes and crashes or something it's just not good for anybody so um making sure that you're stable on the bike is is a big part of what we do and that you're kind of um settled on it and that was something that we played with your saddle position uh when we we're doing an outdoor test um quite a bit to yeah. make sure that you were kind of like settled as much as possible to then allow you to kind of move into a more squeezy position um and and see how that works when you went to the tunnel so it's not just about aerodynamics it's about making sure that you're you're kind of nice and stable um and that you can see where you're going obviously um if you're doing things like track riders and stuff you can just get people to look at the black line it's a little bit different the way that you collect data is a little bit different too but um but certainly for outdoor riders you know the last thing you want is to be put in a position where you're looking at directly at front hub <laughs> and just wondering if you'll, yeah, if you'll survive yeah. the race um uh, so yes yeah, yeah it's, it's a different one and then obviously different types of riders have different requirements so not just from a anthropometric point of view you know people have different flexibilities and body shapes and things but also if you're testing someone so if we're doing someone for a, a uci rider for example like a professional then you need to be mm -hmm. more careful about making sure that they can output high power uh in whatever position you put them in rather than a uk time trialist who tends to ride more flat events that don't need lots of kind of getting out of the saddle and smashing it and pushing on over the tops of drags and things that are, you know 10 percent hills mm -hmm. or whatever and coming out of corners at a thousand watts it tends to be more kind of like consistent effort kind of a um you know a mid-level aerobic effort that you might do for a 25 or a 50 or something whereas a uci time trialist yeah. needs to be able to attack corners like a crit and really smash the power down so you with the uci rider you focus more on power to weight and uh the um the ability of the rider to output power as well as cda whereas with a uk rider because the effect of traffic going past you that you get in uktt really speeds you up and it speeds you up more the more aero you are um you can focus a bit more on the aero side of things and you can afford to do stuff that might take away that top end power but knowing that the rider's yeah. not going to need to like to stack out thousand watts every corner <laughs> like you would do if you're doing a tour de france or world's tt um and uh, and so it's it's very interesting, like you know, having to approach the those things in different ways. And then you've got triathlon as well, and long distance try and short distance try and and things. So doing all the air testing is it really does keep you on your toes because um, everybody's different, and 
although you can get to a certain point by copying other people's positions, your 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 most error position is going to be, um, you know, it's going to be a lot different from someone else's, and it'll change over time as well as you become more flexible, or you know, if you've, um, you know, changed equipment and things like that. So um, it's 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 an ever, uh, it's it's a constant evolution really when you when you're doing stuff like that. Yeah, it's fascinating because, like you, you when we did our aero testing, you look straight up at the differences between. Uh, when we did it, we did my position, which was focused on twenty-four hour time trials, but ironically, is the same position that I use for a ten or a twenty-five or a fifty or a hundred or a twelve hour. It's exactly the same yeah. position, and then you contrast that with, say, George's position, which was pretty much purely focused on ten mile yeah. TTs. Uh, and you know mine was high hand you know very high hand position um shrugging the shoulders down while georgian contrast was very much a low hand position and like almost superman like really yeah um it was it was more about for george it was more about um yeah keeping him keeping him low and getting him to kind of like squeeze into it because you couldn't do that for 24 hours um and so, no, uh, and so, yeah, it's, it, that was a perfect example of, of yeah, how different riders, um, uh, requirements will, will result in a different, a different position. I mean, I've changed my error position since I started doing all this UCI stuff. I used to have a, uh, a very different one and, um, obviously there are regulations around saddles and things like that. So, um, it's been a, been a bit of an evolution, um, with me personally trying to sort it out and I'm not quite finished yet, but, um, <laughs> but yeah, it is. What are, the, um, what are the kind of regulations that the because I, I to be honest I don't really understand it so much because I don't I don't do UCI TTs. What sort of regulations do they have around your position? So, um, I think that for, for people in the UK, it, it's certain, it, it's something that people just don't really worry about so much. They, they it's it's so alien to them to have constraints on where you need to put your handlebars and saddle and things. Whereas the riders that we work with, um, and you know we do a lot of work with people from Europe. Um, and and further afield like we had a guy fly over from New Zealand to have a session with us at one point which is hilarious um he was he wow. was actually it's a cool story he was a pilot he, who um who flew for Qantas and he um, yeah. organized one of his flights to coincide with an error testing slot so he flew hundreds <laughs> of people over to the UK um, and then stayed over for like two days and then flew back um and he yeah, no, he was so jet lagged when he turned out. It's hilarious, um, lovely guy. But but yeah, so so UCI uh, UCI rules. Uh, if people don't know where they are, they um, it mainly focuses around the location of your hands in relation to your elbows, uh, the amount of reach that you can have on the bike, and also your saddle position. So your saddle can't be as too far forwards, and your hands can't be too far forwards as well. So the ends be shifted. And what it means is that that you can do like little kind of sneaky trick things where if you put shorter cranks on, it makes it a little bit better for power production in a UCI position because because you can't have your saddle so far forwards. If you have like really long cranks, then your feet are too far away from you. On a, on a uh, UK time trial bike, you just put the saddle further forwards to get yourself over the you know over your feet when they're horizontal when the cranks are horizontal. But you can't do yeah. that in UCI, so shorter cranks are a little bit better. Uh, the reach thing is a bit of a bit of a ball ache sometimes, but um, it's not so bad. And um, I think usually what we see is that uci positions will cost you in terms of aerodynamic drag um to start with 
So if you if we have someone who comes to a session who says, I've been riding in a non-UCI position, but I want to do master's worlds or something, and I want to be UCI, when we put them into a UCI position straight away, it nearly always results in a penalty. And then we have to spend the session working our way back to their starting position and hopefully beyond that too. Um, whereas for UK time trial stuff, it's, I mean, they did have some regulations about where your elbows could be in things and then everyone just like flouted them and they said, oh, I can't be bothered to enforce it. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, it's just, you know, it's, it's a, in, in UCI events, you have to have jigs on the start line. And um, I'll tell you what, I did do a funny one once where I was doing a, uh, a 10 mile road bike TT in Indonesia, uh, which was, uh, which was an experience. It was 42 degrees on the start line my Garmin said and everyone was just oh, it was so hot and uh and really humid as well so you couldn't you just it was really oppressive heat and uh and I was worried because there are still regulations on road bikes uh mo- mainly around how light they are but there are some regulations on saddle uh, saddle position that are the same as TT and I didn't want to I wanted to do quite well uh, I ended up coming second but I wanted to do quite well so I, I didn't want to get my you know bike failed afterwards so I was scouting around for commissaires and I said oh um do you have a is there a bike check anywhere? And the guy looked at me and said, oh, him over there, that, that guy over there with the hat on, he's, he's the commissaire. So I was like, oh, okay. So I walk over to the guy. And normally when you do a bike check, they have a, a set of scales and they have a jig um, and they put your bike up against the jig and then they have little measuring bits on the jig to see whether you're in spec or not. Um, and yeah. uh, the guy just looked at me and he grabbed my bike and he just, he just like hefted it and then looked into the air a little bit and put it down. He was like, yeah, you're fine. And they just gave it back. So, uh, so that was my that was my experience of a, uh, an Indonesian UCI UCI bike jig. And then you have experiences where you know you, people the, the jigs are wrong. Um, I did. Uh, I was helping out one of our riders at National Track Champs this year, and uh, the jig yeah. they were um, they were calibrating their spirit level because your armrest can't be more than fifteen degrees in a UCI uh, bike, and they were calibrating the spirit level off the jig but the crossbar that they were putting the spirit level on to zero it was off center. So everyone was being told that their armrests were 16, 17 degrees or something. I'm like, Oh my goodness. Like I know for a fact that it's fine. And they were like, no, no, I'll change them. So, yeah. Oh, you know, it was just, yeah, just, just little things like that. And so that's why the CTT, to be honest, probably quite rightly have said, we're not going to worry about making people do. So CTT's UK time trials is we're not going to worry about making people do stuff like that because um, it's volunteer led and you're not going to have a jig on the start line of every race. So it'd be a, it'd be a complete nightmare. Oh, I could oh. imagine it like turning up to a 10 mile TT at like six o'clock <laughs> in the morning and some guy a jig and goes, nope, can't yeah. race. Well, they, they did do a thing once where they, without telling anyone, uh, although I suppose you wouldn't, would you? They started scanning everyone's bikes for motors at the, uh, the women's national 50. I think it was men's national 50 as well. And so you'd roll, the, the riders were rolling to the start line uh, it was somewhere near Nottingham, I think, and it, they were going from the mm-hmm. HQ to the start. And before they got to the start, there was a, another layby, and they were getting accosted by people saying, "I want to scan your bike." And the riders were like, "Well, this isn't a CTT regulation. What are you talking about? Plus, I've only given myself enough time to get to the start line to do my ride, not to some someone to wave an iPad all over it." Um, and a couple of riders yeah. left, like missed their start um because they were and they were wow. like yeah scanning the bikes and having pictures taken of the riders and putting it on some database or something and it was all a bit weird so i don't think they managed that very well and i think the experience of trying to do that probably led to not wanting to um <laughs> to do anything on the start line and, and whatever um, which is fine i think obviously if, if someone starts to really take the mick with regulations then they'll react to that 
but um, but for the moment, the way that the CTT is run is that it's a very easy entry into the sport, and it's just a nice way to um, to do some racing quite cheaply. So, adding barriers to that is a, is a bad idea. Yeah, it's really uh, for me like time trialing is a good way to be. Comp- like, I don't like crits or road races or anything like that, and it's a good way to be competitive. And not not just race against other people there, but you know, race against yourself. And as you say, it's very friendly and welcoming, and it's just a nice scene, isn't it? Generally, like it's there, every every TT I've ever done, there's always been really nicely run. There's always been like cakes and coffee and stuff at the end, and like it's just a good vibe to it. It's super chill. Normally run by old people who just enjoy bike racing. Basically. Yeah, and it's it's very much a, a British institution as well. Like it's been around for so long that. Um, and, and the thing that we say to, um, to like newcomers and, uh, and stuff, cause we, we try and do, um, uh, a bit of a push for road bike time trials, because I think a lot of the time people think, oh, I've got to have a 10 grand TT bike to take part in things. And the CTT regulations, like you could turn up on a Brompton if you wanted and you wouldn't be turned away. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and it's, we, we've been trying to like, uh, although this year, obviously it's been completely shot down because of the um the pandemic thing the we had a road bike national series going where we wanted to like let people enter tts on road bikes who might not have had a tt bike or even if they did you know still enter it too and try and kind of show people that it is so welcoming um because yeah you just the, the, it's a very low low barrier for entry um and you can enter on a <laughs> sorry you could do it. Yeah, if you wanted to. Oh. Yeah, why not? And I, I, I remember doing a TT once, and some guy turned up on his um, his commuting bike. It was like a flat bar hybrid, and uh, he was he was dead shocked. He, he got under thirty five minutes for a ten, and he was he was happy. And the thing I think to bear in mind is that when you do a TT, um, I remember I got my sister to do her first one, and she was um, she was worried. She was like, "Oh, you know, is what people going to think if I don't, you know, go under thirty minutes or don't go under forty minutes or something?" I was like, "You have no idea. No one really minds what time." anyone else does like no one no one's that much. like everyone's just trying to either race themselves maybe they're trying to race their mate but like if you come last no one no no one cares like it no, no one absolutely not and you know i remember um we did uh, we organized midland championships one year and uh, there was a woman there who got under 40 minutes and she was always like, oh, that any good i'm like are you kidding that is awesome like just to the just even getting to the start line of a race and it being her first race um and getting round and not getting lost and you know, get managed to finish the race and everything is fantastic. And no one minds what time you do because everyone's different ability at the end of the day. Um, and I, yeah, exactly. As long as you're giving it your best shot, it doesn't matter at the exactly, end of the day. Exactly. So yeah, no excuses, just finish the race and make sure you've pedaled as hard as you can. And, uh, and then there's always another one next week or in the current situation, right. there aren't any for ages. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right. Chuck, chuck this yeah. one at you. Uh, what is the, best like value tt bike you can get and or and road bike at the moment in your opinion. best value something from argos like what <laughs> best value in terms of like aero performance is that what you asked yeah, yeah why not so we good. so we did a um back in 2015 i think it was we actually built a bike for richard bustle who won the national 10 mile championships and it only cost us like 980 quid i think um we put it together we cobbled it together off like i think a lot of people didn't believe that we 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 built a bike for that money because it had a disc wheel had a tri-spoke and everything and i remember someone saying that they saw it uh, at a race like two months later that rich did and they were like i had a closer look at it and yeah it was definitely a a 980 pound bike because it was falling to bits (laughs) um 
but right. um, but that was based around a, a trek. Uh, uh, it was a, an old carbon trek frame that we knew was pretty fast. Um, in terms of best value, there are a couple of like there are a couple of secret secret aero bikes that I think pe- people don't realize. So um, although they're quite heavy, the old aluminium trek speed concept bikes are really really pretty good. They use the same down tube shape as the um, the carbon speed concepts, and I think the seat tubes yeah. are the same as well. Um, they've got pretty good geometry. Um, they're like easy to work on, so threaded bottom brackets and things. And like we've seen them go on eBay for like two, three hundred pounds for like complete bikes. So for a TT bike, if you can pick up an old aluminium speed concept, that is absolutely like hands down the the fastest, cheapest thing you can get. Um, most of our yeah. team riders ride either Cervelos or Treks. Um, we 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 tend to recommend those because they kind of the geometry is pretty good and they they tend to they tend to like perform pretty well uh, most of the time. Um, you know you can you can spend like a bazillion pounds on a Pinarello Bolide TT, who, which are very very fast bikes. Um, but if you have a, like a nice bike set up, then spending the money elsewhere on things like tires and stuff is the way to go. Um, sure, and, and surely most of the the biggest factor of drag is the rider itself yeah it? absolutely so you know if you can if you can afford to spend more on getting the rider more aero so whether that's by getting a, a a better skin suit or you know getting your aero position sorted out um or even just doing a lot of training in the aero position because that's free that doesn't cost you anything and you know making yeah. sure that you can hold the position and keep yourself nice and stable is um hugely important and i think that's something that sometimes people like um people miss a little bit um but yeah training and training in the aero position is is a is an absolute win um but uh but yes and, and from a road bike point of view um i don't know i think there are lots of like um lots of kind of nice aero road bikes i'd go for something yeah i'd go for, again for something secondhand um that's maybe a few years older uh, one of the older Cervelos probably could like um because they've been they've been pretty good for a while um uh, like the old S2 and S3 are like pretty good bikes. They don't, they don't have yeah. amazing clearance on the back end for some modern wheels. Um, so they're a little bit tight in the chain stays uh, for some wheels. That might be a consideration. But um, the Giant Propel as well, even the very first edition Giant Propel was a really good bike. Um, and then obviously some some of the newer ones like the um, Trek Madone's a really good one as well as the Specialized Venge. In fact, we had a, we had a Venge in the tunnel yeah. and um, we did it bike only. And the bike only drag on the Venge was like, it was basically a TT bike. The guy had like deep section wheels on it and stuff, but it was, yeah, it was, it was good. <laughs> it was a, the new Venge is a very it's cool bike. It's a nuts looking bike, isn't yeah. it? Like the new Venge, how they've kind of, uh, I, I, like, I, I, a little bit of me still likes the, the McLaren yeah. Venge, yes. that one. Like, I think that's just like a classic bike. Was that the first one? That was one? the first Venge they came out with. Yeah. And it had that kind of top tube yeah. that turned into a chain, uh, seat stay, uh, yeah that that for me is just a beautiful piece of art more than anything and uh i i've got a friend that works for mclaren and they actually they have i think one of the first ones that was produced in the mclaren um headquarters which is really really (laughs) cool um but like that bike seeing how that bike's evolved over time has been quite fascinating actually like it's really it it it, look the similarities now between the venge and the tarmac quite astounding as well and there's definitely a thing that the more i guess the more like gc style all round the bike is taking a lot of aero 
element to it now and this is very very clear in all bike ranges like the the biggest you know one of the biggest examples that stood out to me of recent time was focus the azalco max which was always focuses like top end road yeah. bike it was always quite traditionally uh you know round tubes very traditional looking bike and then they refreshed it and it's now an aero yes, road bike yeah yeah and, and and even the the bikes that people are using as their climbing bikes they're they're still putting aero tech in there like the tarmac and the um the cannondale uh i can't remember which one it is it's the super six is it yeah 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 yeah, yeah. Super, um, yeah they're, 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 they've all got like these little little tweaks to to try and help because people know how much like aero is important um, and if you're looking at like um if you're looking at pictures of bikes and things and seeing how they evolve um one of the most interesting things for us is the the seat tube because it's a very difficult tube to get right um from an aero mm-hmm. point of view it creates an awful lot of drag and it's a it's like a big issue to be honest and and seat stays as well um the it might not seem like it's important but it's why everyone's going for drop seat stays and why some bikes have got some very weird arrangement like the new shiv is a great example of that shiv tt the specialized shiv tt yeah um, the seat tubes very dramatically different from what you've seen before big gap between the seat tube and the back wheel um and then the seat stays come off at a proper angle i mean they've really pushed the uci regs from that point of view because you can't have the seat stays too low um and they've uh, they've managed to push the little you know the 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 um what's the word uh the the, you know, the boxes that you can use to um uh to stick your tubes in as in the yeah. the scope for movement uh, they've really pushed that out a little bit to to get the seat stays as low as they can with a bit of a horizontal entrance to them so yeah it's, it's cool it's just it's really interesting to see how things how things change um obviously you are you know constrained by uci regs and um the uci can be um interesting when it comes to that and we do a lot of stuff like we, we're constantly in communication with the uci with all of our new products and things trying to get stuff make sure that we're not going to see any issues <laughs> later on and we had a we had a, a particular issue recently where they tried to ban one of our components um which they previously said was fine and then we had to come up with you know a, a huge justification as to why it's all right um including examples of other people who are doing exactly what we were doing um and they and they and they they, they caved they uh, they said oh yeah no it's fine and we're like oh thank goodness for that because <laughs> we'd, we'd already <laughs> sunk so much money into it it would have been it was yeah it was a, it was a solid like five figure sum um yeah Shit. it would have been it would have been a real pain well especially because they they previously approved it and then they just changed their mind that's what annoyed me about it um but isn't that quite standard do you find with them or is that um, just i think it i don't know that they've the a little bit a little bit they, they, there's too much um opinion has too much sway currently in terms of whether something is allowed or not um the rules aren't, aren't yeah. tightened up enough um so uh what we do now is we just and we did we did this for one of our uh one of our components the thing that we did with the national federation like a big project and um from the from the, the from the get-go we were just sending them cad files and just saying is this okay is this okay is this okay because we couldn't afford we we're working with quite a tight quite time uh a tight timeline so we couldn't afford for them to come back at a late stage and say no this isn't okay and the way that we designed it like they were um they didn't like a particular bit of it um and so we had to change it and then suddenly loads of other teams were doing it was a track component and loads of other teams were doing things that they told us that we weren't allowed to do and then they changed the rules to say that they could get away with it and 
we just wasted like three months worth of engineering time having to change change stuff around so yes actually actually now think about it yes they they are quite annoying um but (laughs) i understand the need to have regulation like i'm I'm totally fine with that um it's just the application of it and when i get a phone call saying you know from switzerland saying oh by the way you need to tell all of your athletes that have bought these things that um, they're going to have to be sent back and they can't use them. It was something that was used at World Champs, um, World Track Champs as a, a different component and, uh, and no one can use yeah. it. And I was just like, I'm not doing that. Of course I'm not doing that. Are you kidding? So we had to, it was just a very stressful week. But um, we got, a, we got a, someone won a World Champs using, a, um, using that particular component. So that was good. And it hopefully showed the UCI that, um, you know, the that people wanted to use our kit rather than just being some random component that they could get banned and no one would care about it. It was actually, um, it was actually quite popular. So that was uh, stressful, but we came out on top. I don't expect us for that to happen again though. So we're, we're being very care- careful with any of the new stuff that we do. I guess it's just like lessons learned and on, on to the next one. The more you work with them, the more you can understand how they work at the end of the yeah, day. Yeah. And, and the, the guy's not unreasonable when you, when you speak to them. Um, it's John Christoph Perot actually is one of the, uh, uh, one of the people in charge of the material uh, side of things. And then another chap um, and they're not, yeah, they're not unreasonable, but once they've decided they don't like the look of something. And when we sent mm. them um, the schematics for like the national federation thing that we did, it looked real dramatic and they were like yeah yeah we don't like that we're like well what don't you like about it and they said well we're not sure let us get back to you and then three days later they came back with a new regulation that they'd invented because they didn't like the stem and it was like oh give me a break you know <laughs> so um yeah it's but and the, well the problem we're having now is that they're um they're not replying to emails i think the, the uci have furloughed like 130 of their workers so um we have we have two projects that need to be approved and so we're gonna have to um, get hold of someone somehow <laughs> to make sure that we're not going to get um, any surprises further down the line. So obviously this whole, the pandemic we're currently in has had a big effect on you and, uh, and oh, you know, it's had an effect on projects definitely, which in that, that's prime proof of it. Like, um, but I guess you can only do as much as you can, can't you, in these situations? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think that um, we're, we're taking the time to, um like consolidate some of the stuff we're doing and it does give us time to um to work on uh projects that that require a lot of a lot of focus so we've got um like a few world tour teams that we're doing like different things with um whether it's you know data collection and um uh, or or components or like tweaking of the existing stuff and and things like that and it means that um that'll all keep happening like that's not going to just disappear because those projects still still running um Obviously, the yeah. error testing side of things, um, we're not doing any error testing at the moment, but that's fine. Um, you know, we we don't we don't ne- we don't need to do the error testing. Um, and people are still um, like buying stuff off us in terms of like uh, things like armrests and chain rings and extensions because you can still use those on the turbo. So um, having a you know a nice comfy error position is always the goal, whether you're on the turbo or outside. So um, it's just it's definitely changed things. Like you know. Our, people are working from home more um, and we don't have to do quite so many like big um, bulk postal orders and things. So um, those guys don't need to come in. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it's just, it's just different. I think um, it's certainly, um, yeah, it, it's, it obviously it feels different. Um, but because there's no racing, I think that's what's, that's what's weird. Uh, because yeah. We yeah, all race yeah. bikes and um 
that's that's the thing that you do at the weekend whereas now the weekends are kind of a bit more empty and you don't need to fill it with work because you've got all your work done already so <laughs> um that's what that's what's yeah. feeling a bit a bit weird at the moment um it's yeah. a bit frustrating too my mum's just moved nearby to to where i live and um i can't go and see her which is um in the grand scheme of things a very small uh a small whinge but uh but you know no, I completely get that as well. Like my, I, my, it was my dad's 60th birthday the yeah. other week, and I couldn't get him in the Isle of Man. He's a high risk yeah. person yeah. as well, and and I was I I planned to surprise him for his 60th, yeah. uh, but couldn't do it. Like to be fair, it was completely understanding of it. Like it was just like, yeah, fair. <laughs> he was pretty chill. Nice of you to have tried, but yeah, and uh, like I've got my. Uh, stepsister's wedding in october on halloween oh, right. actually um so we'll see if that if that happens oh, no idea yet um she hasn't said anything about it so yeah i mean potentially who knows yeah who knows um yeah but, uh, we're having to get my mum to sort out uh internet and she's got a smartphone now so that's step one um, so <laughs> we'll uh, we'll still be able to keep in touch and things but um yeah it'd be nice to yeah nice to pop around but as you said yeah, bigger, definitely. bigger things are afoot than worrying about seeing my mum on the weekend. So, what would be your like? Give me like a couple of really quick and easy like tips that you could give to people who are looking for like quick and easy gains for time trialing or or for crit racing and road racing as well. I guess it applies. Yeah, to so both. Cy- cycling performance in general. Um, I think the first one is tires. Like tires are just by far the the, the cheapest fastest easiest upgrade to make uh and if you drill that down more you go latex tubes or you go um going tubeless if you've been using butyl tubes or something then um that that's an absolute like easy win um, we do a lot of data on that we do a lot of private data for um for teams and federations on rolling resistance for like prototype tires and things um and uh, mm. people are moving away a lot of the protol teams are moving away from tubular tires these days because um the the traditionally a tubular tire um, from the sort of larger manufacturers will have a butyl tube sewn into it and um, you know the, just putting a latex tube inside a uh, inside a tire will speed it up loads or having sealant instead of a instead of a tube so um, tires are good um, we've got some data on our website for uh, just free data for people who do time trials mainly focused around time trial tires um, showing the kind of improved performance improvements you can get um, and tires aren't that expensive for the savings that you can make so, you know, if you, you might be spending, mm. I don't know, 50, 60 pounds on a tire or something, but you'll get more from that than you will do if you, I don't know, yeah, buy a frame <laughs> or something, you can choose the wrong yeah. one. So, yeah. um, so definitely, yeah, definitely tires are a, a, a real good one. And that applies to everyone. So obviously for road racing and, and crits, you need to have, um, you need to have good grip and, and stuff like that. Um, but if you, uh, um, if you're doing TTs, then, you know, something that, won't puncture or is less likely to puncture but is the fastest thing possible is the is the way to go um i suppose related to that is tire pressure i think people get tire pressures wrong quite often um with more modern tires they tend to be more supple and with more modern wheels as well because the internal rim uh rim width so the the distance between the um uh the 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 hooks on the rim uh is wider on more modern wheels it means that you can run a lower pressure because contact patch is different than what you would have had on a, a, a wheel with like a 16 or 17 mil internal rim width. These days, they're like our wheels, I think, are like uh, the, the deep section wheels we do are like 19 or 20 mil um, internal rim width. So um, the tire spreads out a little bit more and you can run a lower pressure. 
So making sure you get the pressures right and you can really go low. I mean, very experienced crit riders will know this, that you can do a crit at like 60, 70 PSI in some conditions and it's totally fine. Whereas time trialists traditionally would be like, well, what do you put the tire up to? What, what it says on the sidewall. And so they're like <laughs> risking splitting their nice deep section carbon rims apart because they put 180 PSI in their, in their clinches. Um, so, so getting your tire pressure right is, is, is good. Um, you know, these days, less than 100 PSI for everybody unless you weigh 110 kilos or something. And then, um, I mean, I ride, I'm, a, you know, sort of high 70 kilos, sort of mid 70 kilos, depending on how many donuts I've been eating. And uh, uh, I, I run about like 80 PSI. Um, yeah, you're the same as me. I'm about the same as me because I'm the same. I mean, it's not necessarily donuts, <laughs> but it tends to be. I, I, bake, I actually baked, uh, I, I, I like baking. Yeah. Um, I've made... Uh, they were supposed to be hot cross buns, but I didn't have the right flour. Right. So I just used self-raising flour and they turned out to be like hot cross scones. <laughs> That's very good. That sounds, that sounds very tasty. They taste incredible to be fair. But yeah, I'm the same. Like I ride about 80 PSI. Yeah. So, That's my door. One sorry. second. One second. Yeah, my partner coming in so i've just unlocked the door and uh uh yeah my great sounding uh door <laughs> system yeah very loud um but yeah i i yeah I, I you know i'm the same sort of weight as you uh and i run 80 pretty much on everything apart from off-road yeah, yeah exactly um and and you just you just don't really need to go any higher than that and, and we've seen that if you if you err on the side of too low, it's always better than erring on the side of too high. So uh, if you let's say your optimal PSI is, is 80 for a 25 mil tire on a modern wide rim, um, and you put yeah. 100 in it, then you're going to, it's going to cost you more watts than if you put 60 in it. So um, going too low is always is, yeah, is always a better, a better plan rather than going too high. Interesting. That's a good tip. Yeah. For that. Also, check your check your um, pump. Get some kind of tire pressure gauge or something. Um, we've got some funky little quark um, tire whiz things that will uh, uh, measure your uh, tire pressure. So we calibrate all of our pumps to it because pumps aren't necessarily correct. <laughs> so you could be five psi out without knowing it. Um, so yeah, that's, yeah, I can see that as well. Right. Sure. I've got I have two different trap pumps at home, um, which I ones are like a tubeless one with like a big air valve on it and one's not and i don't think that either of the pressure gauges are correct on either <laughs> them, to be honest it's, it's, it's really interesting we're hopefully going to do some data for people on um uh tire pressures and stuff like that outdoors and we're going to use this um uh the the quark tire whiz is basically like a little sensor that screws onto the uh the valve and it measures the air pressure yeah. live and it will beam it to your uh, beam it to your phone um and so you can see the psi changing as you're riding as well as over time um so i think that'll be quite uh quite interesting to see how uh see how that responds if we can get some logging data in different surfaces and stuff we want to do some gravel tire testing as well um but uh it's just about finding the right location for that we've nearly got all of the, the kind of 
stuff we need to do that. It's just finding the right the right location to get the to get the data correct. Because rolling resistance is like it's massive, and it's something that we do we're doing kind of more and more of these days, um, both from a kind of you know interest point of view because we need to um, uh, help. We need to recommend tires because we sell wheels, so we need to be able to recommend the right tires for people. Um, but also yeah. from a development point of view, like we've had some, um, we had a really good tubeless tire from a pro team recently and um, we're not allowed to put it on our little public graph, but like, it's really good. <laughs> and I might, I might be right. I might, if I can get hold of another, another couple of sets, I might, I might ride them this year. Cause um, they're really, they seem like really well, uh, really good for puncture resistance. And they're nearly as fast as the fastest things that we've, um, that we've been testing. So, um, so that's been pretty cool. And then we got some prototype tubulars as well from another, another team and they were, um, they were terrible. Like it was, I was really surprised. Um, and uh, so they're, you know, having to make decisions about what kind of tires they're going to have to use for TTs this year and, and stuff like that. But so they might like scratch out the logos and use something else. Yeah, quite see. possibly. Um, I think that for, for a lot of teams, that going to tubeless is an is an easier win than working on um, uh, tubular development um, and getting tubular tires to mm. be a lot faster. So. Um, teams teams are moving towards tubeless, but they're but they're they're quite against going to tubeless for road racing. They want to all run tubeless for um, TTs instead because um, the feedback we've got from the um, the teams we work with is that they they're, they're worried about puncturing tubeless uh, on a road bike because you'll go down faster than you would do if you were doing it in a TT. So if you're in a bunch and you puncture a, a tubular, you can hold it up. But if you pump the tubeless yeah. tire and it sprays sealant everywhere and the tire just goes to zero PSI immediately and it starts coming off the rim, then you're in trouble. So that's why you still see uh, Pro Tour teams uh, running tubular tires for road racing. But for TTs, they're yeah, definitely moving in the other direction. Um, both... That's interesting. I've never thought of it like that. Yeah, I think that there will be a, a, a situation where the tires are so good that the risk for punctures are so low that they're willing to take the hit um but also also yeah. it's lighter as well like tubular tires are uh tubular tires and wheels as a combo are, are pretty much always going to be lighter than a tubular setup um so you're not gonna um you're not gonna be hindered by going uphill and things but um there's a very interesting and i haven't done it yet but there's a very interesting calculation where if you if your rolling resistance increases by a certain percentage it's because of the way the physics works it's almost like adding weight to your bike because of the um, okay. so if you go uphill and you have a faster rolling tire it, it kind of not perfectly but it kind of flattens the gradient out a little bit because of the way wrong resistance uh the, the 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 effect of the resistance on the on the system so what i want to try and do at some point is do a little a little chart where it says look if you swap from this tire to this tire and you're doing even if you're doing a hill climb or going on a flat or something it's like taking x amount of kilos off your bike because i think that will highlight to people just how important it is yeah, yeah, definitely. Nice. Cool. Uh, I'm going to now drop in my killer last question, which is five hacks or life tips. Um, <laughs> I've been trying not to think about Everyone it. Does that. Sorry? Everyone does that. They go, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, hacks or life tips. I think uh, I can probably go for like a, a very corny one, which is uh, do things you enjoy. I've, I've been very kind of um, over the course of my career, I suppose I've, I've, I've really focused on doing things that I really wanted to do. So, um, you know, originally it was going to be academia and then realized that that wasn't going to allow me to do the things that I really wanted to do. So um, 
I, you know, took, I, I didn't care about the money and, uh, and started doing work in, um, in sport and then, you know, everything kind of spiraled from there. But yeah, don't, don't, mm. don't worry about, and certainly don't worry about if, if you know that that's something you want to do, then you're the, you're the, you're the best place person to make that decision. If people around you are saying, oh, I'm not sure if that's going to be the right thing for you to do, but you're dead set on it, then only you will know, really. So, um, yeah, I don't want to say follow your dreams, but um, <laughs> if, you have an, if you have an idea of what you want to do, and the thing is, if you don't have an idea of what you want to do, explore doing different things. Expose yourself to different scenarios and environments and things, because only then will you end up converging on the right decision. Otherwise, you end up getting yeah, stuck. Yeah. And so if people are, uh, uh, want to have you know, a change, whether it's lifestyle, work or whatever, um, but they don't know mm. what that change should be, then you should explore your environment and, and, and find out different things that you can. Uh, and yeah, you might find things that you really don't enjoy, but in that process, and you may find things that you do. But um, that's certainly one of them and something that um, I've always ever done things that I've wanted to do um you know whether it's from a professional point of view or uh, or, or whatever so and and it's 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 worked out okay <laughs> we've got i've got to an okay place so far nice i like that yeah, one i've got to come up with four more right. yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh don't pump your tires too hard no uh um i think uh i don't know make sure that um so so this is more of a kind of work thing uh, business thing but make sure that you 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 accurately display if you're if you're really passionate about something make sure you accurately display that to other people so i i love what i do and i i really really do and i think that when you're working with with other people they it will rub off on them if you're excited about mm-hmm. a project like we had a project with a um uh, a para sports federation which we might end up doing um something totally out of the totally out of the blue um that we haven't done before um, we've done work with para para sport before, but this is this is a new one on us. Um, not aerodynamics, but more kind of engineering side of things. Um, and it just sounds fantastic. And rather than just being like, yes, yes, we'll do your project and we'll take your money and do it, it's more like, no, no, I really want to do this, and I genuinely believe that it, it sounds like a lot of fun. Um, and and people really respect that. And and also say no to things that you think just might not be the right fit or that you won't be able to devote enough of your attention to, um, because it'll it, it just yeah yeah it just won't be the right thing for you to do so i think that um if you're if you're keen on something make sure that everyone knows that you're keen on something and uh you'll find that everyone else gets kind of g'd up by that in the same way too um that's uh, awesome. yeah that's something that always i, I like to I, I like for people to know if i'm excited about something <laughs> for sure mm-hmm. nice nice okay we've done two three, three right. more uh um I think um, so. Something that I, I so I had a, I had a discussion with my PhD supervisor uh, at one point where he said to me, um, "I was I was riding my bike uh, every. I tried to ride my bike every day, and um, and he said to me, he's just like, oh, you're, you're riding a bike too much. It's it's not um, you're not spending enough time, you know, fully focusing on your PhD, which I thought was harsh to start with. Uh, I was I was very devoted to my PhD, but uh, but he." Um, but I said to him, I, I said, look, you know, I've, I've never really disagreed with you before. We've never had an argument or something. But this this conversation is um, the end of this conversation is that I am going to do.
do exercise every single day because um, it, it really does make you more productive. And just, you know, an hour's exercise a day and like I, I tend not to do that necessarily most days, like 40 minutes or an hour's exercise a day, you can always find time for that. Um, even even if yes. it's just like just something that's that's exercise related, whether it's stretching or doing some yoga or something like that, um, just finding that time in your day where your head's always a little bit clearer than it would be if you're sat on the sofa on your phone and your head's spinning, or you're you know you 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 think about something, or, or you're sat on sat on your computer or whatever. Um, finding some time for 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 some kind of physical activity is just it just makes you so much more productive. Um, and it keeps you healthy and all that kind of thing too, you know. Um, but um, but I, I find that like an absolute like I've I've ever since I was, you know, thirteen, fourteen. Um, that's what I've done, and you know, for the, um, you know, over twenty years since I've been I've been exercising nearly every single day in some capacity, um, and you just feel mm. so much better for it. Obviously, you get withdrawal symptoms if you can't then exercise, but then that makes you hopefully try to find the time time to do it. Um, and so, yeah, always, always try and find to time, find, find time uh, to make time to keep your keep your body ticking over, because um, it will really it will really pay dividends in terms of your overall productivity. Um, yeah, for sure. Nice, I like that one. Yeah, as someone that is someone that does yeah, that. Yeah, really. exactly. I think I think it's different for people that that, that don't tend to exercise. I suppose the uh, people listening to this podcast are going to be you know, ticking that box anyway. But um, even if it's mm. like helping other people understand the, the uh, not the, not the importance, because then it sounds like a chore, but the, but the value, um, the physical and mental well-being that you gain from just doing a little bit of exercise and getting yourself a little bit out of breath a few times a week um, really, really, really pays off in, in all things. It helps to chill you out. It makes you more productive at work. Um, and, you know, if you end up doing things like races or events and big rides and things it makes them much more enjoyable too rather than slogging around with low fitness <laughs> um, yeah, I yeah, try, yeah, try exactly. not to let my fitness slip too much if i can um mm-hmm. so what are we on now two more two more um, yeah um uh i don't know i don't know reduce your screen time I'm, I've, I can't say that because I don't, so I'm not really sure that can be a, a, a Zav life hack. Um, <laughs> um, be organized with your food, quite a good one. Um, That's a good Yeah, it's, again, it kind of comes down to the like physical well-being thing. Like if you, um, so, I mean, uh, obviously this isn't the right thing for everybody, but um, I use a meal replacement shake because I'm traveling quite a lot. Um, and that was a huge win for me when I started doing that, um, for breakfast and lunch and then have like a cook supper, um, when I'm somewhere, um, that'll allow it. But, um, that was a massive win for me just having consistent food because otherwise you're like eating out service stations and things, um, and just having rubbish food with, you know, processed sugar and, and stuff like that. So, um, I think not so much like choose a particular diet, uh, or, you know, not have this particular food or whatever but just um if you can if you can spend a bit of time um taking care of your your food that will really it improves your mood like enormously um Massive. yeah yeah and and it, and it means that um yeah you can just be more consistent from day to day in terms of how how you feel uh, how productive you are 
and things like yeah your tiredness and stuff like that that was a that was a big one for me when I started doing um uh yeah I started being a bit more consistent with my food um so that was that was quite a good one um and then uh last one I yeah. suppose my yes so far it's it's been a lot of kind of like physical and uh yeah mental things I don't know other life hacks um yeah I'm not sure I think that it's tricky isn't it because you only end up being able to recommend things that you've done and so your experiences are related to that and I'd consider that mm. the um you know um like running a business isn't necessarily something that a lot of people do so a lot of the life hacks and things that I end up recommending from that point of view are, are related to are related to that but um I don't know uh yeah I'm not sure I'm not sure I mean, the tire pressure one is a big one on its own right, to be honest with you, I mean, mate. tire pressure, always have the right tire pressure, whether it's your car or your bike, is always going to be, <laughs> is always going to be important. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, th- I think that, um, uh, yeah, f- focusing, I suppose all the other recommendations I've done so far, I've, I've been like make, making sure I'm focusing that you're in good nick and um, healthy in a, in, a, in a good place, because that will make sure that it everything you do is, like um uh that you feel happy with everything that you do um and and Mm. trying not to make rash decisions and stuff like that i often get you know i often come up with stupid ideas and have harebrained decisions and have to run it through a few people to um to talk me out of uh (laughs) you know dropping dropping five figures on a project that's just not gonna be such a good idea um but um (laughs) but uh but i think that once you've um once you've committed to let's say you're making a decision whether it's about moving house or whether it's about um yeah making a carbon part for the olympics or whatever um once you've once you've committed understand that don't let the doubts creep in like understand that the the process of getting to those decisions to getting to that final decision uh is is one that you've made and you know confirmed in your own head and then and then run with it everything everything will be will be fine if you commit to decisions even if you think that oh maybe it could have been better or whatever It'll, if you commit then um you'll find that things tend to have a positive outcome in my experience um but it's that commitment and and steadfastness that um that makes stuff really um yeah really really tick over rather than like worrying too much about um yeah small doubts or what other people might think or, or something like that if you've made a decision then that is the right decision for you, um, and so if that's your if that's your final answer from a who wants to be a millionaire perspective, then um, then you've got to run with it and take the consequences, good and bad. Nice, geez, I think that was five ridiculously good tips. Actually, <laughs> you might need to yeah uh, edit down my slight rambling around it, but there'll be a, there'll be a quote in there, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. I'm gonna I'm gonna wrap it up there. Like that's been. Nearly an hour and a half of very fascinating chat. So thank you so much, Zab, for that. No problem at all. Uh, oh, look forward to it. Poet, poet and I didn't even know it. You were saying? Poet and I didn't yeah. know it. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, that was brilliant. Thanks so much for your time. Um, super, super fascinating. And I'm sure we will have another catch up at some point further down the line when we know what's going on with the world of cycling yeah quite yeah no, I look forward to everything it. hopefully yeah. see it at a race at some point as well yeah yeah it'd be nice yeah. wouldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> we'll 
We might just end up doing them all on Zwift. Yes, exactly. Yeah. How how work out the CDA of Zwift, mate. That's your next chance. Yeah, people have done it. People have done it. There is a there is a CDA on what? Zwift for uh, different like riders' characteristics and things and rolling resistance and stuff. People have worked it out. Um, because yeah. Yeah, wow. I know. I, know. I'm, I don't want to do it because I don't want to get annoyed because it will be higher than what my actual CDA is, I'm sure. <laughs> so if I, get, if I get smashed in races by tiny 50 kilo people, it will just make me even more annoyed. <laughs> yeah, don't do it. Don't, don't allow yourself yeah. to do it. <laughs> cool. Thanks so much, mate. I'll talk That's to you right. soon. Cheers, Chris.